You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hi, and welcome to The Compass, the podcast documenting the struggles of life as an artist. I'm Leah Walsh. Hi, everyone. So I just wanted to share a little quote with you before I intro the episode. Um, I feel like I'm just in a big period of change in my life, and I've been thinking about this a lot. I found this quote by Andy Warhol that goes, When people are ready to, they change. They never do it before then, and sometimes they die before they get around to it. You can't make them change if they don't want to. Just like when they do want to, you can't stop them. Anyway, I've just been reflecting on that a lot, of how how I'm finding that's true in myself and how I'm finding other parts of it are true with uh, other people in my life and how, you know, you can't control other people's actions. So that is my thought to start off this episode. My guest today is Nicola Rose. Nicola is a filmmaker, a director, a performer, and a translator. We met about a year ago through Art Girl Army, which is a, um, a Facebook group I'm, I'm a part of. It's a great networking group of creative women. She has been forging her own path with her filmmaking, and she just wrapped her next film, which is called In the Land of Moonstones, which you'll hear all about in the conversation. She grew up in a family of artists of various kinds, and she's so driven and determined, and I'm really happy to share this conversation with you today. You can see more about what she's up to at nicolaroseonline.com. I hope you enjoy the 107th episode of The Compass. What do you do to try to keep from going to the dark side as an artist? That's an excellent question. (laughs) I think the answer is create more art because I I was actually just talking with my dad about this today because he's an artist and he's good to talk to about this and all other things. And honestly, all it takes is 24 hours from having done an important project before I start to feel myself edging toward the dark side. Yeah. It's really, really easy to start to head back that way. Um, I'm not saying the dark side is my default state so much as <laughs> if I'm not actively creating something I care about, I kind of do tend to venture there. And to avoid that, the thing is to embark on the next project. Now, sometimes, of course, there are major barriers like financial or creative or what have you. But in this case, um, I just, you know, I, I finished I finished a movie, which we'll talk about later. I, I finished it two days ago, and it didn't take a full day before the darkness started to set in. I started, yeah. started to think, you know, nothing I'm doing really quite matters the way I want it to and blah, blah, blah. And the, the antidote to that is obviously uh, launch into the next one. What are you planning to do? Are, do you have something already set up to be your cure this time around? Or Yeah, I mean, it'll take a while before I... Well, first of all, this movie needs to go into post-production. Right. Um, so you so, still have some things to keep you busy. Oh, gosh. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I have months of this one still to keep me busy, but... After this one is over, I am going to... I mean, I do know what the next one is. That is, unless it turns out to be something else. But mm-hmm. I did write my next movie. So um, it's it's a short film. It would be a short film. Uh, I wrote it back in September. So the script is, you know, lying there in some state of disrepair, needing to be edited <laughs> and polished. And um, I do need to go back and... and uh, you know, actually make sure it's written well rather than just written, which is what it is right now. And uh, hopefully uh, by fall I'll be ready to 
head on to that one. What does the dark side look like for you most often? It's it's depression. It's um, you know I, I as as a lot of artists have I've struggled with uh, depression in an artistic sense and and. For me, that's that that pretty much covers everything. So, in a personal right. sense, you know, since I was uh, a teenager, and um, it all got uh, it all got launched in the first place by um, I, because I didn't grow up that way. Um, it actually what what triggered it was not getting accepted into the drama schools where I wanted to be accepted, mm. and I had spent you know, for better or worse, uh, six, seven years planning for this every day, working on my repertory and, 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 um, for, to, for college to get into drama school for, for college. Yeah. Just yeah. determined that that was the thing that would happen. And when I didn't get in, it was as though the future was just this void all of a sudden. And I'm honestly, you know, even though the future is no longer a void for me because I've really taken it into my own hands and I produce my own projects and I'm making money and I'm happy at the same time it is very very easy for me to sort of you know one false step and I can sort of edge into being a I become a 17 year old again who just didn't get into drama school and is saying oh my god I don't right. I don't have a future this this is, I had a plan this was the plan <laughs> I had a plan but I had a plan since I was 11 or 12 and this is literally a void now and right. you know I, I don't have Shakespeare to work on every day I don't have my voice to work on every day I'm not taking these lessons anymore there's no point you know so it is very easy to fall into that, to fall into the feeling that um, that nothing matters as though I'm sort of in an echo chamber or a vacuum. However, it's not true. I know it's not true. Right. And again, the antidote is more work. As long as it's right. work that you care about, you know, there, there was a commencement speech that Neil Gaiman made that's, um, I think, pretty famous because it seems to be... Uh, pretty widely shared on the internet where he was saying his it, it was a, it was too it wasn't a conservatory I think but it was some kind of arts college and he was saying make good art that was his basically that was that was it that was the <laughs> sum total of his address to the graduates actually said make good art which I <laughs> I'll said. have to look it up it's really good if you just google like Neil Gaiman make good art it was a good speech uh, my ex-boyfriend showed it to me um and it, it was intuitive on his part because he knew it would speak to me and, and he wasn't and isn't in the arts, but, you know, he, 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 he sensed that I needed to come over and listen to this because it was a deceptively complicated uh, message. It wasn't just make art. It was make art that speaks to you. You know, yeah. you have, you have one go on this earth. So make something that speaks of your soul, that speaks of the fact that you were here, express yourself because, and this is me talking, somebody somewhere is going to somebody is going to identify with that this is going to resonate with somebody even if it's just one person yeah hopefully it's more but you know (laughs) even if it's just one person it's going to resonate with that one person so hard that they're just going to fall on your knees that that piece of art that you made existed and that's kind of the goal for me (laughs) well I love that you do make so much of your own work and you're really driven in that way when did you when did you first kind of flip that switch for yourself like after the disappointment of letting go it's hard to let go of plans that we make so strongly in our heads yeah tell me about it (laughs) (laughs) and so when did that realization kind of come around that you're like oh I'm gonna take this into my own hands I think it was somewhere I mean I've always created stuff I've always like as a child I'd write my own draw my own stories and stuff Mm -hmm. um but that wasn't I don't think I looked upon it as a sort of vocation 
as such. I think it was more just something that I did because I liked to, and I didn't think about it beyond that. It was just what I was kind of wired to do. At some point, um, I I was in college, and what's the timeline on this? I would have it would have been three four years after that initial disappointment and the sort of the the Great Depression, you know. <laughs> I, I, I uh, three four years later. I had a lapse in the depression, which is to say I actually sort of broke through to the surface and saw the sun for a little while. And during Mm -hmm. that point, I wrote a musical. Uh, It was a a very funny musical comedy um, that that got produced at the Fringe um, in New York some years ago. Uh, And it had to do with a grocery store, a supermarket that had a curse on it. And I, you know, as I'm thinking about this, just as I'm talking you off the top of my head, that was the turning point because that was the first project that... I wrote and felt so deeply and strongly about that this had a future and that this was going to make it to Broadway. It made it to off-Broadway, so not bad. <laughs> you know, it made it to the Lynn Redgrave Theater, which has like 200 seats or something. So, you That's know. pretty good. It's not, not terrible. <laughs> so, um, and it, it had a wonderful production in San Diego as well. It went to there. The first time San Diego had a Fringe Festival, we were the first, I think we were the first musical. Definitely one of the first productions. Mm. And it was great. Um and, um, you know, I, I look at that piece now and I say, well, this is juvenilia that needs major work. Um, <laughs> but, you know, at the time, I mean, there are things that are wonderful about it, but, you know, it's basically it's a fixer upper. Uh, but that, that's me talking now. This is nearly yeah. 10 years later. Actually, this is 10 years later. And now that we're in 2018. But that was the first time that I really felt myself breaking through to the surface and saying, hey, wait a minute. Uh, you know, f- feeling that I had, was pretty much done at 2021. Here I was saying, well, wait a minute. No. I actually do have more mileage left in me. And from there, I started directing theater. I started producing theater, little things. I started, um, I, I produced a full-length play that I directed. Um, this was after the musical, which was the first, you know, big major mm-hmm. thing back, so to speak. I, I didn't talk about early stuff, but, you know, um, I did a lot of theater as a kid. And so, you know, here I was, I was producing theater, I was doing these things. At some point, I segued into film. I was still primarily acting at this point, which I wouldn't necessarily say is what I do anymore. Um, mm-hmm. Not ruling it out, but, you know, it's not so much like the, the major thing. The focus. It's not so much the focus. And so um, this was in, we're now in 2013, 2014. I somehow segued into film and I realized, hey, wait a minute, I'm going to make a web series because you know, I'm a professional puppeteer. And so that is way more interesting to most people than it is to me. As with, you know, as with most things that are slightly weird, it's like, if it's about you, if it's a thing that's weird about you, you are not nearly as fascinated by it or even remotely interested in it as other people are. So I had all these people read, you're a puppeteer, dude, that's amazing. You should make a show about this. It's like, you've got to be kidding me because if I were actually to depict this accurately it would consist of me with like five bags sitting on the subway being like damn it I'm late damn it I'm late that would be like it would be the adventures of late girl and I would be like pissed off all the time and and be like I don't want to go to a daycare and do a puppet show I want to stay home and drink coffee and pet the cat um of course I was thinking a little too inside the box when I had that particular vision so uh so at some point and I forget how this happened it turned into this sort of twisted and bizarre fairy tale about a girl who has a 
um, a rare disease called puppetitis B, which <laughs> which makes a puppet grow out of her hand. But the puppet is a separate entity from her. It's living, it talks, and it hates her. And <laughs> that became Kalyanizzi, which was my web series, which was the first film thing that I ever produced. And uh-huh. now I look at it and I say to myself, this is very funny. This is also a learning curve project. And I can see all the technical problems with it where I didn't, you know, at the time because it's like, you're cutting yeah, your teeth. Of course not. But it was the first big thing that I ever did myself. Big in the sense the episodes are tiny, but altogether it's big. Altogether it's the size of a feature film. There's like right. 24 episodes, and they're all. But little. there is something lovely about working on film in that it's it's contained in a different way than theater. It's not as ephemeral. Far as, yeah, as far as producing it, like you can really take it in your own hands and do all the parts and you don't have to rely on gathering the audience and no. all of that in indie theater it's on you to bring in yeah. all the people and in this you know it's kind of it's out of your hands it's whoever watches it afterwards but that's not simultaneous with what you're doing right and you can make it on your own time nor are you on such a hamster wheel as you are in theater because you're always fighting um, against this major deadline that's in your face and with film okay yeah you're fighting deadlines but it's like if you have a flaky person who drops off your crew or out of your cast you can replace them and you can reprogram that day you can um, you know set it on another day you can't really do that in right. the same way with the obviously your your feet are to the fire so do you feel like you've learned mostly about filmmaking through doing Oh or gosh, yeah. Have you pursued it in? Have you tried to study it in other ways as well? Or I have, and I, I, I I've learned some stuff formally, but honestly, I am I, I have always been a huge proponent of learning by doing, mainly because I don't learn very well in the in the traditional. I was gonna say it's because you were homeschooled. It's because <laughs> we were both homeschooled. Yes, I forgot this. We... we were both homeschooled. Oh my gosh, <laughs> which we met once last year and we talked about this, but yes. I knew it was gonna come up at some point. So I, but I forgot until now that you were homeschooled. <laughs> It's because yeah, that's a huge part of at least my home education. It is learning by doing. It's learning by doing. It's autodidacticism because yeah. I don't know. I don't know about you, but like I spent so much time just like reading a book by myself and then being like, oh, I'm just gonna do this, whatever. You know, <laughs> putting the book aside. I don't, I don't understand this. I'm just gonna do whatever the thing is and making major mistakes, which is which is what I do now. I basically, you know, I'm getting better and better with each project. At least I would hope at what I do. But basically, ninety percent of it is screwing up, and. I think that's fantastic. Yeah. And oh, if, thank if, you. If you, well, I, mean, I don't necessarily. <laughs> no, not that not that you mess up, but that you don't. A lot of people have like a deathly fear of failing, but I, you actually learn a lot from failing. I started off by majorly failing, though, so I think that's why I don't have a fear of it anymore because it was such a major blow at the time that now it's like, dude, I'm fine with this. You know, it's just like it's it's fine if I fail because I started off by failing so spectacularly that I almost left the arts entirely. And now that I'm back in, and I'm pretty much back in for good, unless mm-hmm. something like completely unforeseen and catastrophic happens, I'm I'm here. I'm not I'm not going anywhere, and and I feel really strongly about that. So, I'm I've pretty much uh, I've pretty much signed on to to fail here and there as I go along. <laughs> as long as as long as I keep as long as I keep in it, I'm I'm good. Do you enjoy doing all the different? I know you're wearing a ton of hats yeah. right now. You're, you're writing your work, directing, you're acting in it sometimes. Um, 
I mean, we need to hear more about how you became a puppeteer for your day job at yeah, some yeah. point. <laughs> but is is there... How did I become a... Yeah, no, we'll talk about Do that. you claim all of those titles, or is there one thing that you're like, you know what, in 10 years, I only want to be d- directing. Yes, I only want to be directing. Yeah. I, you know, if it money was, were an object, I yeah, would pay we, someone to do everything else, and I would just direct. I would just direct. We, You know, if we didn't live under capitalism, if... You know, there are so many things that I say I would do for free. Puppetry, I would not do for free. I love puppetry. I would watch other people do puppetry uh, gladly <laughs> as a matter of fact I got uh, I got a, a, um, a mug for Christmas that said puppetry makes me happy this is true however I remember making a joke about it and saying watching other people do puppetry makes me happy <laughs> because it, it does start to feel like such a grind and you do have to remind yourself routinely hey I actually like this and I got into it because I like it I got into puppetry in France in fact where okay. it's kind of regarded differently which is to say as more of a Sorry, as more of a um, sort of an art for everyone, kind of more of a workaday, everyday art than it is here, where it's kind of this is massively oversimplifying, but I feel like in the U.S. it is sort of compartmentalized as a children's thing. Yeah, I mean, not yeah. There's a few adult things that incorporate it. There's yeah. All oh, there's my bread and puppet is incredible, but they're not. You know, most people don't know about them. Yeah. Uh, there, there was Hand to God on Broadway a few years back. There's still Hand to God. I guess it's in the West End. No. Yeah, I love that play. I do too. It's wonderful. But that's the exception. There are a bunch of exceptions, but in France, it's just sort of this thing that everybody and his brother goes to, mm-hmm. and it's, it's a tradition. Yeah, it doesn't exclude children, but it doesn't exclude adults. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, and sometimes it totally excludes children. I've been to any number of totally filthy sexual puppet shows, <laughs> and they're they're usually great. I went to one um, just a couple months ago in France, and it was. It was based on a comic book by um, a French cartoonist called Copy, who who does really simple drawings, look like little round people with huge noses, and he was super famous for commentary and cartoons in like the 70s and 80s, and they adapted this into a puppet show, and it's completely filthy. All of it is like bodily, and you know, everything is either uh, it's either sexual or or highly suggestive and naughty in some subversive way and it's it, it worked beautifully with puppets because puppets are subversive by their very nature that's why i like them they can get away with so much they can get away with saying stuff that people just can't and they right. break through barriers they communicate with people very directly whether it's kids or adults adults drop their guard around puppets i watch this happen like constantly <laughs> a puppet goes up to adult adult is just like Duh. it's like seeing a kitty or a puppy yeah except not as good <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, they well, do that, that. I mean, I it is an interesting day job. <laughs> it is an interesting day job. And my other day job is that um, I'm a translator. I, I translate right. usually from French to English. So what is your connection to France, just so that the listeners know? Yeah. Um, what is my connection to France? Like, my heart's there, basically. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, uh, You're waiting to move. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I do try to spend as much time there as possible, just kind of whenever work and life allow I first went there actually um, almost on a whim in 2010. I was a junior in college and I decided to spend a semester abroad and I spoke a little French and I got into the program and I thought, okay, I'll do this, but I don't really know why I'm going to France. But when I got there, I realized that I had always been meant to be part of that culture. Mm. I, I fit so much better there than I had ever really fit anywhere else uh, that I thought well this was unexpected and 
I, I learned French really quickly because I was with a host family with whom um, speaking French was, you know, immediate and, and accessible and easy and fun and, and entertaining and awesome. all those good things, you know. They would have, you know, entertaining arguments in front of me and I would pick up on, I would pick up on insults and it was great. <laughs> um, insults between siblings, you know. And now you work as a translator, so, you, so you're fluent. Yeah, I'm I'm bilingual. Um, there, I there will always be something in the way I speak French that will make French people think that I'm Swiss, which I take as a compliment because Swiss people are very versatile with hmm. their languages. <laughs> I have a number of close friends who are Swiss, and uh, all of them float back and forth between languages like it's nothing. Yeah, that's incredible. Either they think I'm from Switzerland or they think I'm from the south of France because I tend to, like, over-enunciate. Well, okay. In Paris, <laughs> by Parisian standards, I over-enunciate, which is to say anybody over-enunciates compared to Parisians. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever heard a person from Paris, like, say a sentence in French, but they could say a whole sentence that, to American ears, sounds like, <laughs> and all of that is actually, like, there's 56 consonants in that <laughs> sentence, <laughs> but they, you, you do not hear it. There are friends of mine that I'm certain I've never actually understood anything that they've said. I've just gotten the sense of it, and I keep talking. <laughs> <laughs> I say that, especially younger people, it's just, it's a linguistic thing, but as somebody who's obsessed by accents and and ways of speaking and imitating people I'm really fascinated by it I listen to the ways that things are communicated and a lot of it is just by sounds yeah. like when they say you're welcome which is I'm gonna say it fully where they say de rien and it's de de rien r-i-e-n two words um so you'll hear some people say like de rien and then you'll hear a young Parisian say it sounds like un and that that is d-e-r-i-e-n you don't hear any of the letters you hear <laughs> it's it's mesmerizing anyway let's see how did we get back here oh yeah france puppets um france puppets and i didn't talk I about the films yet yeah, but yeah. So, but then i was asking about like so if you had your your druthers you would be a director yeah because i think i mean i i started out as a performer i am a performer i think fundamentally i'm wired that way but as a director i find um, and i've just found in the last like one two years that i'm able to fire on all cylinders it, it uses more of more of my brain it uses it uses more firepower and you're working on so many different levels you're you're interacting with other people's intelligence rather than just spending yours and other people that you work with as a director can inform you in ways that um, I wasn't um, receiving as an actor necessarily, which isn't to say, oh, that, that makes it better. It's just, it's a matter of, um, it's a matter of having a bird's eye view, sort of a panopticon view of mm -hmm. everything that's going on in this production, in this movie, in this stage play. Um, and having what you do informed by the personalities and specificities of the people that you're directing um because it's not all on you actually in the end you're 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 arranging you're conducting but it's going to be the the tonalities of you know the people that are your instruments there on the stage um these these two children who are in my my film uh, moonstones that i just finished um the two leads are children um the the girl who carries the movie is 11 and the second lead the boy is 12 they the two of them have taught me more about directing than mm. anybody like anything prior any any positive experience any negative experience any other person any director that directed me anybody that i ever directed because being children they are so open 
uh, open-hearted, open-minded, and just both of them are brilliant. But that's another matter. They 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 don't have to method act because they're literally living everything that they're doing in the film. I don't. I there's very little barrier for either of them between life and art, such as, as the, you know story in the movie. I bet they probably had some amazing questions every now and then too, like with a lack of filter. They did. They were wonderful because um, they just said whatever they felt, especially the boy who is a complete loose cannon, and I loved him. He came in to audition for this this role, and you know, the girl is a much more guarded and more complicated character, and the two of them came in together, and I remember saying to her, uh, giving her direction for our audition, and I was saying... You don't want to let him know that you feel this, but you do want to convey to him this. Basically, it was all these layers of direction. Mm -hmm. It was this, but not this, but a little bit of this, and see how you can put those things together for me. Now take a minute. And and, and then I said to him, well, basically, you're just a lightning bug. And <laughs> this little boy looked at me for a moment, and then he stretched out his arms like an airplane and zoomed across the room and went, and I quote, <laughs> and I thought... Yeah, you, you're it. You got it. Everybody else can go home. <laughs> and he just kept zooming around the room, making farting noises. And I thought, yes, yes, this child has something. <laughs> this child is special, and I love him. He, he really was that character, too. Um, the character is... Uh, he's mischievous. He's, he's, he's sneaky in a way. You know, he teaches the girl to shoplift. But he's incredibly uh, kind and open-hearted at the same time. He was a manic pixie dream boy, is what he is. <laughs> he is literally the manic pixie dream boy. Um, and this child um, was that character when he came in. It's not that he would necessarily shoplift. I don't think he would, but uh, he he has he has in him that that slyness. You see it even in a photograph that you, you just <laughs> see that he's he's up to something that is so great that you found the right people because i can oh. imagine casting children is extremely difficult it was extremely difficult but you know in what sense it was actually extremely difficult is that so many of them were good and really? i'm i'm not a person who easily thinks that actually i tend to not be very i, I this sounds snotty as hell i, I tend not to be impressed uh-huh um but i had I don't know, it was something in the water or something. The groups that came in, and this included the adult roles, the people that came in for this thing, and I had just kind of selected from the gazillion video auditions, I might have made some wrong choices, too. I mean, there must be people that I left aside who would have been extraordinary. I'm sure that's the case in any audition Everything. situation, Everything. which we all know is maddening. <laughs> but these kids came in, and um, I calculated, I, I don't remember the exact numbers, but there are three lead roles, and all of them mashed together, I calculated that 63% of the people who auditioned would have been fully castable. Yeah, just this is different. They would have been slightly different. Totally different. The The top two that we had to play the role of the grandma, because, boy, this is all out of order the way I'm telling you. But, <laughs> That's okay. Uh, it's fine. But, um, but the story, it's the girl's grandmother, right? It's the girl's grandmother, yeah. The, the um, story just has to do with her first love and her relationship with her grandmother, who's her best friend. And her grandmother is an immigrant from Russia. And in the original book, they live in Boulogne, which is a you know suburb of Paris on the west. And uh, I think in the 80s, it was a Russian senator of some mm. sort. And um, in the book, of course, because we filmed this on, in New York, we um, set it in Brighton Beach because Russia. Yeah. <laughs> Russia's <laughs> everywhere. Everything is in Cyrillic on the streets. It's perfect. Yeah. So we filmed quite a bit of exteriors on location so we could get the, you know, the things saying, um, awesome. you know. That's awesome things in Russian in the background. Anyway, so for the grandma, we had these two actresses come in on the same day who were absolutely night and day. They both would have been so excellent. 
one was um, sort of young and glamorous for you know probably 55 much younger than the role was supposed to be beautiful long blonde hair she's actually the one who plays the role in the movie mm-hmm. um she's 55 who looks much younger in fact we had to kind of old her up for the role um <laughs> and you know very glam very russian very she's like a babe grandma is what she is um very russian as well glamma she's glamma it's like glamping <laughs> She's from Moscow. She's very much the genuine article, except much younger. And I was like, well, you're a little young, but the emotions were... She wasn't faking what she was doing. It was just, you know, she started to cry during the audition, and you could have said, oh, this is calculated and and cheesy, but she was really crying, thinking of... She was telling the story about her character living in St. Petersburg as a child, and it it Mm. tapped into something that it actually... I don't know what, but it tapped into a real thing. It was really, really, really close, but she ended up getting the part over this other lady who was American, did an excellent Russian accent, had this verified by Russians, because I was like, I'm not really sure about this. It sounded perfect <laughs> to me, and I love accents, but, you know, I, I'm not Russian. She came in, and she looks absolutely the part of a babushka. You know, she right. she she has the gray hair, the glasses, the whole thing. I There was just no choosing between them they were utterly different types both would have been perfect in this role this other lady was extremely theatrical where the first one was rather restrained by comparison um the second one i wanted her so much in the movie i I chose the first one because she was really russian and that just gave her the tiniest edge the second one was like we've got to use her in this in some way i ended up rewriting the character supporting character of grandma's very theatrical brother to be grandma's very theatrical sister no way in hell these ladies are related but you know (laughs) it's a movie so uh she came in and and plays wonderful plays great aunt and it's, it's perfect yeah can you tell me a little bit about kind of the nuts and bolts of how you pulled this film together yeah how you raised the money how you you found your collaborators like what it started when what you did I was in France um, a year a year ago and, and, and change to film Creative Block, which was my last film, my short film, which was a bilingual uh, film in French and English. And it was a co-production um, between my French team and my American team in that we filmed uh, a little bit actually on location in Paris while I was there for that important, totally tax-deductible work vacation. Um, <laughs> I like a day after filming or something and I, my mind was totally on that film thinking only of creative block a day later I was in this bookstore in France um, it's my favorite bookstore which is called Bouligné and um, there outside of Bouligné which was already this majorly significant place for me so I, I, it got even better um, there was this discount bucket because they always have all these books out there for like 50 centimes and one euro and I saw this little book that I guess I liked the cover because I picked it up and I was like, yeah, I guess I'll, I'll read this. And for, it had to do with first love and friendship with a grandma. And I was like, okay, yeah, this is, I'm a total sucker for first love stories. So yeah, I'm totally going to read this. And everybody's a sucker for first love. I feel like I've been talking to people about this so much. <laughs> Everybody has a first love story. Um, but anyway, uh, I picked up the book and I said to myself, I'm going to read this someday. Two months later, I was back in New York at home. I was reading it, and I was just just kind of gobsmacked by this story. I mean, the writing is excellent, so it wasn't just that it was a good book, but it was so evocative and immediate and intense, the way that this lady described falling in love when you're 11 or 13. Mm. I think the character is 13. The actress was 11. Um, it was as though 
she had just fallen in love for the she remembered this as though it was today I mean, there are people like our age who don't remember what it's like to be a kid, but this lady who, we're now friends, the author of the book, she's 50, and she, not that that's old, but like, she remembers being 13 as though it was this morning, and Mm. you could feel, I've said this so many times, you could feel literally every heartbeat of this book, like my heart was pounding along with it, and I don't generally react that much to books and movies, I love them, I I inhale them, but I don't like, anyway... I went in the space of five minutes from the thought of, I've got to see the movie of this. Who's made a movie of this? To, I have to make the movie of this. <laughs> you know, that's, that's how that happened. So all of a sudden, I had taken on this project that wasn't even mine. Um, not really. And, and so you just found her and she I, said, sure, go ahead. Yeah. Actually, oh <laughs> I found her. I mean, that's literally the story. I found her through LinkedIn, of all things. Because <laughs> she didn't have an agent. one purpose. <laughs> LinkedIn serves nothing them. else. I know LinkedIn is useless. Not not in my not in my case, but <laughs> I it was so funny because she she didn't have an agent, she didn't have a site, she didn't have any of the usual channels you would go through. When was this book published? 2011. Okay. It's not even old. I mean, it's I don't believe that it's still in any sort of it might not be out of print. I don't think it's in a major release anymore. And it's in French? It's in French, yeah. yeah. Um so I translated it and majorly, you know, um mutilated it to put it in English and said it in New York added things that weren't there all this stuff the author knows about it she's just like yeah it's fine I to this day I don't know why she was so open to it she was just completely open-hearted gave me the keys to the city I do not know why she's just like that I mean once I met her I kind of got it because I was like oh you really she does have the 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 heart and the openness of an 11 year old girl like she kind of is that little character Hmm. except that she's grown up and been through all these things and you know her life has been very multifaceted since then she's also an economist she's got super interesting life she also just happens to be a really good author you know it's like okay you you were you were many amazing things and so I met her a month ago when I went to, to France. We finally met. She said it was like a, a, she said, this is like a lover's meeting. And I said, it kind of is. And we, you know, we just embraced her. for a yeah. year. So we just hugged really hard. And, and then we went to her apartment, which is filled with things that her Russian grandmother gave her. Aww. She gave me a brooch that her grandma gave her. And That's I was like, so sweet. oh my God. <laughs> I don't think you, I don't think I deserve this. She's like, no, she'd want you to have it. And I was like, would she? <laughs> she believes her grandmother brought us together. She's like, Aww. she, you know, I, I don't I know. If... She's so excited to see the finished product. She is. And I just adore her. I think, you know, she wrote me, she wrote me a dedication. It was like a two page dedication in her book. Mm. She, I said, will you write me a dedication? And she said, I have haven't thought about what to write and I said just write whatever comes in your mind I thought it would be like to Nicola love whatever right and and she said she said no but I didn't think about this and I was like why are you so she was like okay we were at a restaurant at the time she said okay sit there and shut up and I was like why and she was she she was like I mean from the heart yeah she did and she she succeeded she wrote for like 15 minutes and I was sitting there just kind of writhing on the other end of the table at one point I started to say something she's like I met it shut up and I was like okay okay god and so she wrote me this like dissertation in her book and the last thing she said was you're a luminous person and I I have no clue about that but she is and honestly I if if the only thing that ever came out of this was that I found her if it if I never made any movie, if I totally flaked on the movie, this was still worth it. This so, whole... did you meet her before you started shooting? No, this, this was, um, we were during the process of shooting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we were seven out of nine days into principal photography. By okay. that point, no, I'm just curious because I. It sounds like she has such a special energy. I wonder if it would have changed what you did at all. 
Probably, yeah. Like your perception of the younger character. Even Probably. though it's a fictional character, but somewhat her, perhaps. It would have changed my perception, but nothing would have changed what the actress does because right. she's literally playing herself. There is no different. This is the thing about acting with children. There, at least these children who are professional actors, but not in the sense of not in this. They don't have people. They don't have technique. They don't have technique at all. They have nothing. Right. But that's good. So, what are some things you've learned about just getting things together and making things happen, like? I'm just thinking for other people who might want to be making their own film project, like yeah. getting financing, getting equipment, finding your collaborators. What are some What are some tools you found useful? If you're doing this on a micro budget, which I'm assuming most, you know, the vast majority are, try to find collaborators who uh, have their own equipment. Because this is just a practical thing. Yeah. And to say nothing of what your collaborators are like, which is a whole other discussion, <laughs> but. Assuming that you've found good collaborators, try to find people who do have their own equipment because it um, it saves you a great deal. They might charge you a rental fee, which is normal, but it's still not going to be the same as getting your own equipment right. unless you feel you are going to need this many times, in which case it starts to pay for itself, you know, to get a microphone or whatever. If you do this over and over, you need your microphones. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you're doing a podcast. Um, in terms of funding, I have... I've been lucky to successfully crowdfund a number of projects. In this case, I was even luckier because I was able to salt away enough money to actually front, um, to actually front this. Nice. And that's the only time that I've ever done that. It may be the only time I'm ever able to do it. I mean, keep a good thought, right? But you, you never know. And it's possible that um, after this project is over, it's probable, in fact, that um, once I've cleared my head a little bit, because we just wrapped production two days ago, it's very probable that I'll run a crowdfunding to um, a pay myself back a little because that'd be great. Yeah. But also to pay the crew better than they got paid because you know I believe in paying everybody if if at all possible. Mm -hmm. As I say, these are things we would all do for free, but we shouldn't. And um, everybody did get paid. Did they get paid handsomely? No. Did they get paid decently? Mm, ask them. You know. But. <laughs> The, that's the thing, you know. It with if if I were able to make back a profit on what I spent, then that goes to them. And so there's there's more than one reason to crowdfund. Yeah. And I can't overstate the importance of planning, pre-planning everything, pre-planning every shot, everything you're right. going to be doing. So you don't waste any time. Don't waste time, especially don't waste other people's time. Wasting your own time is bad enough, but wasting other people's time Espe is criminal. Especially if you're not able to pay a ton. I'm always aghast when you're doing a project for free or almost free and people don't use every second of the time or don't, don't plan ahead they don't respect you and they don't respect no, their and own it feels project. disrespectful it is disrespectful <laughs> it's terrible like i'm doing you a favor and then you <laughs> you just wasted an hour even if i've been working even if they are getting paid i get really really antsy about people waiting on set and i know that i mean some of it's gonna happen but of course it's gonna happen but it always does they can tell if you're if you're on top of it or you're not yeah, so that's my thing. People tell me that I'm the most efficient director they've ever worked with, and I have no idea about that. But what I do know is that I have a major, major chip on my shoulder about being made to wait. Mm. And so I think it just makes me like extra border collie-ish because my spirit animal's border collie. <laughs> um, <laughs> actually, no, it's my parents' dog, Daphne, who is half husky, half lab. But more generally, it's the border collie. <laughs> um, so you just really lay into the pre-planning as much as you can. Yeah, but I don't always perfect it. Um, it I was just talking to my wonderful DP, who did um, director of photography, who did Moonstones. 
um, about how on the final day, and this was this was a learning experience for me. Um, <laughs> I did not really explain to her what I wanted one of our shots to be. So I was telling her, oh, yeah, yeah, set it up like this. It'll be fine. It's going to go great. And in fact, it did go great. But she didn't understand what we were doing because I had not sufficiently communicated it to her, nor had she talked to me, but it wasn't on her. It was on me as producer. I was supposed to, and as director, I was supposed to tell her that. I just assumed, yeah, 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 we know what this is. This is super right. easy. So we'll get it. She didn't know what to expect. Right. She didn't know what to expect. And I didn't have the language to tell her because all I could say is, like that you know which is kind of what i'm like on set i i i'm i'm very much from the guts and all all the intellect anything that you're hearing now that sounds well spoken <laughs> is me not being on set <laughs> it's, it's afterwards or before it's so easy for me to talk to you to talk to my friends and say it's supposed to be like this or or in post-mortem it was like this but during it's pretty much all um gut think which i would recommend it's actually better for the movie or the play whatever <laughs> artistic thing you're doing Hmm. There was, I, I, I tend to live by this actually, uh, figure skating, which is one of my favorite things. I don't skate, but it's my favorite thing to, my favorite sport to watch and inspired creative block, which I'll get back to. Um, Scott Hamilton, the skater said as a commentator, um, just skate stupid. <laughs> Basically like, don't, don't think. Don't. Yeah. Well, you've tried to perfect your skills to the point where you don't have to. And you can tell when people are head cases, and I don't mean that in a pejorative way. I mean, you can tell when people on the ice are psyching themselves out because they're not skating stupid, whereas the ones that are skating stupid, assuming they have the technique, are the ones that are landing. Hmm. And, um, you know, they're, they're, they're the ones that are not um, doing themselves in. Right. And, you know, we're not skaters, but we do the same thing when we're listening to ourselves talk, when we're watching ourselves move, when we're thinking about our legs, when we're thinking about, you know, whatever irrelevant and annoying detail is plaguing us. Can we talk a little bit about your family and oh, totally. how they perceive you pursuing the arts as a career? I know that yeah. they're artistic themselves, right? Yeah, so it was kind of... I guess semi-inevitable. <laughs> um, my dad is a professional cartoonist, and he has been for about um, 25 years as a newspaper cartoonist. And then before that, he was a uh, magazine cartoonist and panel cartoonist freelancer. Um, so he, and before that, he was a professional musician. He, he attended Juilliard. My mom attended Juilliard. They met here. They, I know, which is where we're recording today. That's where we're recording. <laughs> Hello from Juilliard. They're going to be so tickled that we recorded this Yes, year. I'm going to tell them. I did text them a little while ago. I said, hey, I'm on the third floor. Um, <laughs> so that was their floor, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. um, they met in a music history class here, in fact. And they, uh, she's a singer. She's also a pianist, but she majored in voice here. Mm -hmm. And um she, she got her master's here he got both his bachelor's and master's here in viola and um then he kind of stepped sideways into being a cartoonist but music is like this huge major force in his work it's all classical huh. music does he still play um i haven't heard him play viola in years because i think cartooning basically just takes up all his um time and energy but he's it's I don't, I don't, I, I've talked to him about that. I was like, do you ever feel that you're missing out on what you got from playing? And he said, well, no, I'm channeling it through this. So, yeah, you know, I, I'm sure they, they exercise different parts of the brain, but at the same time, I guess he's getting the same, you know, creative juices flowing out of what he does now. Um, and there's so much music in his comic strip. There's just so much music. There's there, if you if you look at his his comic Nine Chickweed Lane, there's just there's so many musical um, strips. There's just so many. He uh, he mostly uh, he mostly draws. He draws and writes. That's that's what occupies his time. 
Yeah. And uh, my mom does still play and sing and freelances. And my sister is a cartoonist. So the whole family. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I couldn't escape it. Um, and you and you mentioned talking to your dad earlier. You feel like you can talk to them about your process and stuff. It's not like the kind of thing where you're like, yeah. you're my family. I can't talk to you about this. I can talk to them about anything. I mean, almost to a almost to a fault because there will be times that I can keep something to myself and I will feel I can't because <laughs> I'm so used to uh, unloading all things on them that I'll be like, it feels wrong to keep this thing to myself, <laughs> even though I would do so much oh, better too. That's so amazing <laughs> that they're that supportive. They are. I mean. I know, you know, any number of times we've had this conversation where I'd be like, well, you know, you could have, we, we could have pushed you another way. You could have had way more success. You don't have to be an artist. You don't have to. And they didn't push it. They certainly didn't. But it was like, I didn't know there was another thing to be. Hmm. I did not know. Well, that's why I feel like some people who are in the arts love that their kids follow that path and some people are like do anything else I'll kick my kids butt if you follow <laughs> just to ha- just to have it just to, yeah for financial reasons or whatever it is yeah you know i was talking to um my uh both both of the kids that were the leads in the film i was talking to their parents about you know what they want to do when they're older and of course uh, at least the boy i know he's wanting to go into acting as a profession and i felt like what do I really think about that? Because I didn't opine. It wasn't my business. But, you know, part of me wants to say, no, oh, my God, don't do that. And the other part of me, a much stronger intuitive part, wants to say, yes, oh, my God, he should because the arts need him. You know, <laughs> they need this little force of nature. Of course they do. So, yeah, it's always interesting to see what parents encourage or what parents well, take the hands off, hands off method. I mean, these ones are super supportive, but you don't know. I mean, you never know how people are going to evolve. They're 11 and 12. Oh, There's yeah. a lot that's going to... Totally. The fact that I actually chose a thing at, like, 10 or 12 and stuck with it is kind of weird. That's pretty impressive. <laughs> is... Or depressive. <laughs> <laughs> is there, like, a lesson you've learned over the last year or two that you're really proud of that you want to tell me about? Um, yeah, keep fighting. I think, honestly, with because the last two years have been the sort of watershed years for me with being able to successfully do my own projects and keep improving. Um, I think it's not just keep fighting, it's that um, the fight is always in your hands at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. You don't have to wait for other people to take control of your career for you, to move your career forward. That's it would huge. be really nice if they did. I would love for somebody to yeah, take a chance and get on a little me. help. It's <laughs> like little help over but still, here, that's, please. That's but <laughs> important and huge. It's yeah. It it is. It's 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 a two parter. It's keep fighting, and at the end of the day, that fight is yours. You're the one who nobody is going to look out for you more than you're going to look out for you. So if you're a good warrior for yourself, your career will advance. You're going to do okay because you're not going to you know, drop your weapons. <laughs> that, you, you feel like that's something that you've really deeply learned over the last year. Oh too. God. Yeah. I mean, especially over the last uh, year or two, because after I made the web series and I think I dropped this part of the conversation after I made the web series, I went and made the film that I had wanted to make all along and that I made the web series in order. So I could make, cause right. I wasn't able to, I w- didn't have the technique. I didn't, I don't know that I had the technique when I made it. The only time will tell, but I like how it turned out which is creative block, which has to do literally with um, creative depression, with losing your creativity and thinking you may never get it back. And in the case of the film, finding the one person you think 
in in the film the the protagonist she fixates on someone she sees an art another artist whom she sees performing who she thinks is the key to unlocking her own lost creativity mm. to to um rediscovering it only she's got to find out the hard way that this person can do nothing for her um you know he may he may act as a trigger but that that would right. be the extent of it she has to she has to find her creativity for herself and she has to bring it back to herself and this person can do nothing and in fact he's going through his own creative flow <laughs> is it online anywhere that people can watch it you know, it's this is such a disappointing answer. It's in festival competition, so okay. I'm not allowed to show it publicly online. Gotcha. However, but that's I, exciting that it's you're submitting it for festivals. Yeah, I could hypothetically send it to people if people knew my <laughs> email address and wrote to me with my email address. <laughs> but yeah, no, I'm not supposed to do that. No, that's a huge that's a huge lesson. It's. I mean, I hope I actually practice I what like, I preach. Yeah, I feel like it's one I have to teach myself over and over. I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not sure if I, like, hold tight to it all the time. I think my grip slips on it from time to time. Yeah. And those are the days that I call home and I'm like, you know, I feel like everything I'm doing is pretty shitty right now. You know, I, I, I do have those days. God knows, I think I said that today. <laughs> <laughs> do you have any artistic mentors that have been really important to you as an adult? Uh, you know, my parents. parents. Um, I. That's so special. It, it is. I I have other people who have been enormous, enormous helps and influences to me in other ways. And um, people that I adore, I've talked about a couple of them. Um, I've talked about this author that I just met. Mm-hmm. And then a couple other people in France who are artists of various sorts who taught me about puppetry. Who, my, But my parents are the ones that I can take anything to. So at the end of the day, I do always go, but literally at the end of the day, because I text, I'm home for the night. Okay, now I've texted you. <laughs> yeah. Um, however old I get are there certain ways that you see them living their creative life that you try to emulate as an artist like certain tools or um just the way that you see them structuring their lives in a way that they get to have creativity that you think are useful yeah the fact that everything revolves around that that that's the centerpiece for them and that it doesn't um stop you know my mom's always I mean, obviously she gets distracted by other daily stuff because we all do, but basically she's always practicing. Hmm. And my dad, you know, he has deadlines on top of everything else, but one way or another, he's always drawing, he's always writing, he's always doing something. My sister is never without her sketchbook. She's always drawing. Yeah. It's really, it's not just, it's not just something they, you know, that they do, it's something they have to do. And... I probably slip out of it the most easily of the four of us because I have many other things that I do, including translating stuff, and you know, because it's lucrative. And it's a slightly different discipline, too. It's oh yeah, with what I do, I mean, it comes yeah. in bursts. It's not a constant thing. I don't have an instrument that I practice. Okay. I I used to wish I did actually. You know, back when I, <laughs> back when I was um, identifying just as an actress, and that was all that I thought I was doing. I used to really feel kind of sad that I didn't have. A violin to carry around or or not carry around but you know to <laughs> don't just carry just those. as a prop it's an accessory um i carry it in a bag like paris hilton's dog um but you know um that i didn't have a tangible object that i could carry around with me which i think is why puppetry appealed to me at the beginning because hmm. i was like ha here is a physical manifestation of this thing that i do <laughs> and because i did have to have technique to do that right so i i felt fraudulent for quite a while because i was like well acting isn't really this is just me liking to talk this is literally not you know right. anything but you know once i had puppets and i had to actually 
go and cultivate technique to use said puppets, then it was like, oh, this is actually, this has meat on it. This is actually a thing. Right. And I guess now, like, you are writing. You could have your, your notebook with you totally. for that. But, but I always is, did. There is, there is something so constant about, like, having your sketchbook with you constantly and a sketchbook doodling or, all day. Or yeah. yeah, it's just interesting. Or an instrument. I wish I had that skill. Yeah. <laughs> I, I do, too. I... I like to draw. I don't draw very well because I, I, I sort of stopped at age 10 and my sister just kept going and kept going and kept going. Yeah. So she's never stopped. Hmm. I don't think she ever will. Well, the first one is, are there any like concrete things that you turn to again and again when you are having a day that's really dark and uninspired, like books that you reread or places you go or mm-hmm. things that you do that can really tangibly take you out of that place? Yeah, if I'm in the city, I go to Riverside Park. Um, because it's a place that I always find um, refreshes me. Mm. I sort of, it it, it reboots me. Whereabouts, like what cross street do you usually go to? 116th down to 72nd. Yeah, that's a beautiful area. Yeah, yeah. I usually go like up and back, like, um, well, what is that? I guess two miles down and two miles back, something like that. Yeah, because you went to college at Columbia. I did, yeah. Right? Yeah, so that must be homey to you. Yeah, it is. I used to live right between Broadway and Riverside back in the day mm-hmm. when I didn't realize how lucky I was. <laughs> um, and then, um, and, and music, I always, uh, I, I usually try to listen to music while I'm taking that walk or jog because um, there's there's such a great deal that can be, um, that, that, that can be cleansed from your mind by listening to art somebody else created that means something to you yeah and so it's 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 walking around the city it's music it's um there there, there are other things there are there are books that i'll go back to there are comic books that i'll go back to hmm. there are movies i'll go back to i always go back to moonrise kingdom because that's my favorite movie it's the one i've seen the most and then the last question is um is there anything that you've seen recently of any art form that you want to recommend to recommend is going to be difficult for this because I saw it in Paris and um, I honestly I think it closed. But there was a gorgeous um, reimagining of Alice in Wonderland. Mm. You wouldn't have thought, oh, somebody's going to do something revolutionary with this now. But it was it was called Alice and Other Wonders, I guess if you translate it into English. But it was uh, it was by the Théâtre de la Ville, so like the city theater, and they're amazing. And it was sort of a mix of musical comedy physical comedy some sort of acrobat uh work almost and mm. and dance and uh surrealism it was like it was like there was there was some magritte in there as well it, it was just gorgeous and so well thought out and performed and strange visually strange and arresting and it just kind of uh, it, it just kind of spurred me on because it's like if somebody can take something that's been done and redone this many times and make it fresh, then there's always there there is always possibility. Yeah. Of course, now you can't go see it. So. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I could. That sounds yeah, awesome. It was wonderful. Well, thank you so much for doing this. this thank was you. Really fun. This was fun. Thank you for listening to the Compass Podcast. If you find these conversations valuable to your life as an artist and would like to support the ongoing production of the Compass, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com/slash the compass podcast. 
Pledges start at as little as $1 a month. You'll get access to bonus content and anything you can give would be greatly appreciated. Also, if you have a moment, please rate or review in iTunes. Every little bit helps other listeners to find the podcast. I'd like to thank the following people for their generosity. The Compass cover art is by Kim Miller, music by Brandon Spieth, audio assistance from Nick Choksi, and a special thanks to Frankie J. Alvarez. See you next time. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.